This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 133 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a bona fide TV legend, the pioneering, influential, and undisputedly great comedy writer, director, and actor, Carl Reiner. The 12-time Emmy winner and one-time Grammy winner, who turned 95 a week before we sat down at his Beverly Hills home, first made his name two-thirds of a century ago during the earliest days of television, when he first went to work for Sid Caesar. In 1950, he was hired as an actor on Caesar's groundbreaking variety program, Your Show of Shows, and then became a member of its writer's room, the most fabled in TV history, before following Caesar to his next show, the sketch comedy program, Caesar's Hour. While working on those two programs, Reiner hit it off with a collaborator, Mel Brooks, and the two improvised the comedy skit that spawned five blockbuster albums, The 2,000-Year-Old Man. After seven years with Caesar, Reiner left and went off on his own, ultimately creating one of the greatest sitcoms of all time, The Dick Van Dyke Show, which ran from 1961 through 1966 and largely was inspired by Reiner's own life. He subsequently devoted larger amounts of time to movies, acting in films like 1966's The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and directing films like 1979's The Jerk and 1984's All of Me, two of his four collaborations with Steve Martin. In recent years, Reiner has made cameos in films like the 2001, 2004, and 2007 Ocean's Eleven films, and in 2016 on TV's Family Guy, and he's also become a prolific author, most recently of the graphic diary Carl Reiner, Now You're 94, which chronicles his 94th year of life. Over the course of our conversation, Reiner and I discuss a wide range of topics, among them how, during the Great Depression and World War II, he acquired the skills that would serve him so well in show business, what it was like acting on television so early in its history that he didn't even own a television set at the time, who and what made the writer's room of your show of shows so special, the crazy series of events over many years that inspired the 2,000-year-old man albums, how a failed pilot that Reiner not only wrote but also starred in ultimately came back to life against all odds as the Dick Van Dyke Show, What Reiner's thoughts are about the world today, its comedy, President Donald Trump, Twitter, aging and death, the success of his son Rob, who followed in his footsteps, and the recent announcement that he and Rob will both have their handprints and footprints immortalized in front of Hollywood's Chinese theater as part of the 8th TCM Film Festival on April 7th. 
So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Mr. Reiner, thank you so much. Call for... me Carl. We'll get, we'll <laughs> thank get you. along better. Absolutely. Well, really appreciate you doing this. And this is now the, the first time that we've had a father and a son do this podcast. We had an episode with with Rob in Toronto when he was there with LBJ just right, recently. Right. So very honored to have you. And we always begin by asking every guest, where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in the Bronx, New York. It's the Bronx. Yes. <laughs> born in 1922. I am now exactly in 95 in a couple weeks and a week. Happy birthday. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, what? Uh, my father was a jeweler. My mother was a housefrau. My father was a jeweler and an inventor. He invented a lot of stuff that he invented the battery clock. Wow. Got a patent on that. He invented a battery that had him. 5,000 volts and one milliamp, then with little discs of paper in a tube. And he said it would last for 100 years running a pendulum clock. And it it was wrong because when my mother passed away, we flew on a plane and he put the clock in a bag and he shorted the uh, batteries. And so it didn't run 100 years, it ran 60 well, but, but you're going to run 100 and, and more, so that's something for him. Let me ask you this. Were were they funny? Where does your sense of humor come from? Well, two, two things have to happen. You have to, environmentally, I think it's important. My father and mother loved comedy. They used to go to movies all the time and mm-hmm. take us there, the Marx Brothers, Ritz mm-hmm. Brothers. And I had an Uncle Harry on my mother's side who was a member of the original Irving Berlin army show, Yip Yip Yapank. He played the spoons, (laughs) and he also sang. But he was a funny guy. He told jokes. And so I think that's the... And I had a very funny aunt who was really a quipster. And so I think that informed my life. And do you think generally, though, is a a funny person... They can become funny by being nurtured in a, in a funny environment, or you have uh, well, to be born? Uh, two things. Yeah. Uh, there, is a, there is a genes in people. There are funny genes. You know, there's a funny bone, right. but that doesn't really work. <laughs> and, but there are genes in people that scientific genes all. But environmentally, it's the thing. of In the house, there is humor. We watched all the, t- the radio shows that we watched. Yeah. You did watch them. Yeah. You, you looked at the radio <laughs> right. when, you, when it was talking to you. Right. Uh, Jack Benny and Eddie Cantor and Joe Penner, Fibber McGee and Molly right. and Fred Allen. That was our, our sustenance. Yeah. When did you first realize that you were funny? 
Well, I could, when I was very young, I could walk funny. I could make people <laughs> laugh. By, by, my first acting job, act, not acting job, performance was yeah. in the second grade, I think, where we had to, all had to do something for Christmas. Somebody sang, what can you do? They said, little boy, so I, <laughs> I can put my feet behind my head. So I put my feet behind my wow. head, and I walked on my hands, and I put one foot behind mine and hopped on the other. <laughs> and, I, and the teacher thought it was so good, she took me to the other classes, so other classes wow. can see this brilliance. And can you still do that? <laughs> no, no. But I do, in, in this book I've written, yeah. Carl Reiner, Now You're 94, it's a graphic diary. Right. And in it, it's a mundane part of my life. What yeah. I, From the moment I get up, whatever happens to me that day, is in the diary. Oh, you were documenting it. Yeah. I documented my day. That's Whatever great. happens that day, or for the week, the month, yeah. and whatever pops up. And That's sometimes great. it's something unusual. Right. But uh, I start every day the same way. And I say this is a public service. If you get the book and use those first few pages, yeah. when I was about 30 years old, or I slipped on an icy stair and hurt my back. Oh. Went to a therapist, and he said, for the rest of your life, do not get out of bed unless you do these following stretches. And he gave me about a dozen stretches. And I did them this morning. I do them every wow. morning. Fell down a flight of steps about a month ago. Going on the, I was going to go on the Conan show that yeah. night. And as I flopped, I said, oh, here it goes. Right. And nothing hurt. Wow. Because I've, yeah, all you... my muscles were in the right place when I fell. That's fantastic. And so... I recommend you do it. Listen, it's worked for you. I'm, I'm I'll give definitely... you a book and you can start. Thank you. I will. Now, as I understand it, it was, maybe it started in second grade, but your involvement with performing went all the way through elementary school, through high school, but it only the idea of, of performing... No, uh, it didn't go through elementary... Actually, I performed when I was that young, Yeah. and then I performed in the, in the first grade or second grade Six who pass while the lentils boil. I played a headsman, <laughs> right. and my mother was sitting next to Mr. Scapa, the professor, the the principal, and he right. said, "That boy's the best one." And <laughs> from that day, I was the best one. I didn't act again until 17 years later. Not in high school or other things. And, and not in high school ever. I first acted again when I went to a summer theater. Actually, I first acted again when my brother, and here's an interesting That's thing. That's where I'm going with this. Yeah. Is your brother Charlie was an older brother. Yeah, you know how uh, they say get the government, uh, people off the government's back. Right. That's where we belong. Right. In 1939, there was a depression, and Franklin Roosevelt instituted the Works Progress Administration, mm -hmm. the WPA, where free acting lessons, free music lessons, art lessons people some of the most beautiful frescoes are done in these post oh, yeah. offices oh, all yeah. through the country and so i got a little thing my brother found in the newspaper said free acting classes 100 center street new york city i went down there i was about 17 yeah. mrs whitmore an old english actress made us learn the very first day there queen gertrude's speech on the passing of ophelia the death of ophelia and to this day, if I'm woken in my dead sleep, I can recite wow, it to you. amazing. Now, so that was 1939. You were 17. Two years later, obviously, America gets involved in World War II. And how did that impact your life? Well, when I got into the Army, I was very anxious to get into special services. And right before I went into the Army, I took a job as a chorus boy in the Merry Widow 
didn't help. I went into the <laughs> Army. I got into the Air Force first, and I got pneumonia. I was in a hospital for three months, almost died, and they found a thing called sulfadiazin, which saved my life. Wow. I was one of the first ones, experimental drug, yeah. you know, before penicillin. Right. And I lived, and, and then I was reassigned to the Signal Corps. I studied to be a teletype operator, and I was on my way. I was in San Francisco going to Hawaii, which was the jumping-off place to where we were going to invade somewhere. Right. And that saved my life. I was always performing in the rec halls, making people laugh. Right. And when I got to Hawaii, I saw an, an ad for uh, Maurice Evans' G.I. Hamlet. He did a Hamlet in Fatigues. And I went to see it with my friend Saul. And there was my friend Howie Morris, who worked with me in the another WPA project, the NYA Radio Workshop. We got $22 a month for doing radio shows. Wow. I came back. He played Laertes. I yeah. came back. Was always, I said, how are you a Morris? He didn't accept my compliment. All he said, you have an act. <laughs> he was in charge of right. putting shows together right. to entertain the troops. And I said, yeah, well, I, I do. Funny. He's going to audition tomorrow. I said, I'm going away tomorrow to someplace, right. on parts unknown. Right. And my friend Saul said, why don't you audition for Maurice Evans? And Alan Ludden was the captain in charge. And he said, find out if you're any good for professionals. Mm -hmm. And I auditioned, and they said, we'd like to use you. And I said, Major, I'm, I'm leaving tomorrow for someplace. He says, we have ways. And he <laughs> traded me like a ball player. He called General Richardson of the Central Pacific Base Command, traded me out like a ball player. And the next thing I know, I'm in a... An entertainment group. I wrote a sketches for myself, and and who knows, it could have saved your life as well. For all it we did, yeah. it, well, it, I don't know. Yeah, in one way or another. Well, it didn't save. I I worried about the fact that I was replaced, and when I played a show I wrote called Shape Ahoy, which I performed, and it's like a bad movie. <laughs> I played it for one year, going to Saipan, Tinian, Mogmog, Palau, all the islands of the and Owetok, Johnson Island. And we, for one year, we played these installments, installations. The last day, VJ Day, mm -hmm. we're in the air. We hear the war is over. I'm going to play in Iwo Jima's where, my, wow. we, where I would have been sent. And the first thing, there were 17 installations there. And I said, oh, my God, which one? The day of VJ Day, I played for my old group, guys I hadn't seen in right. one year. And here I'm the star of a show, and I'm performing right. for them. And the first question I asked is, every, who did anybody buy it? Nobody bought it. The That's guy great. who was traded for me was a photographer. He went home, and nobody got hurt. Fantastic. But they, we landed. I remember getting a V-mail. A we landed. The message center is the first one to, to, to make the invasion. Yeah. We dug foxholes, or they dug foxholes, yeah. and laid in foxholes until it was clear, and they went up and— made installation so we can inform, you know, the rest of the crew right. where to go and what to do. So I, I really lucked out. Wow. Well, it was also during the war, I think, that you first realized your abilities as a writer, right? I had written material for myself always. And so when I came out of the war, I, 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 le I learned how to type. The, the Army taught me to type. And and one night in New Rochelle, I went to see if I can still type. I typed up something. I showed it to my wife, and she said, where did you get this? I said, 
I wrote it. She says, you wrote this? It was a little funny story. Right. And in about two weeks, I wrote about 13 short stories. Took it to a friend of mine who said, these are good. He gave it to somebody else. The guy said, I'd like to have lunch with you. And I said, hey, Julian, do I have to have lunch with everybody likes <laughs> He says, he was in, in textiles, my friend. And I, this guy was a pocketbook manufacturer. I figured he makes linings. He's no, not those pocketbooks. Simon and Schuster pocketbooks. <laughs> and so there was 13 stories. He said, well, short stories don't do as well as novels. And right. he asked me, make a novel out of one of those. And first novel I wrote, I said to my wife, I don't have enough words to write a novel. I only went to Georgetown for a year. <laughs> she said, you yeah. have something more important than words. You have feelings. And I wrote into laughing, my the forays of a young boy going into theater. Yes, and but I, what I even was referring to was that you were writing very eloquent, moving letters to your wife during the war, right? That made me a writer. I still have those. I must do something with them. Yeah. I keep saying I'm going to do it. I know. Well, you know, Kirk we, and, and Douglas just are about to publish their book of letters back and forth to each other. I think you should do it. it maybe would be I should. Yeah, yeah. because <laughs> Kirk and his son are. The only two other father and son at Grauman's Chinese. That's right. But they weren't there the same day. They were years apart. So, now, yeah, Stella and I, that's why I really became a writer. We wrote at least one or two letters a day for two years, and I have boxes and boxes full of letters, some letters as much as eight. They were all at least six or eight pages. And I remember one Sunday I wrote 17 letters. 13, three pages or six pages of Pete's. And I, that's how I became a writer because it's, I wrote, and I, they weren't in their love letters, but I also, you know, whatever popped into my head. It's sort of a, a lost art now. I mean, email is great, but nobody yeah, really, it's not permanent. Oh, yeah, I want to read my latest email. I just brought it down. <laughs> no, it's it's my favorite email today. All right. My One of my thrusts in life is... He wake up saying Trump is our president. Yeah. Alan Alda's grandson did a thing, a little pastiche, I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's a guy waking up in the morning and he remembers that Trump is the president. He starts to scream, ah! <laughs> and he goes about his business all day long, but in the back of his head is that little thing that's annoying him. So he screams through the whole day, ah! <laughs> but he, he washes, he shaves, he goes to the toilet, he drives his car, smiling at people, waving him across the street. Everybody, but ah! Oh, <laughs> he goes to a market. He sees a woman. They come face to face. Ah! Oh, they're both screaming. <laughs> There's a, an exercise class. All the women in leotards screaming. Ah! Oh, and the woman who's in charge is fixing their legs and they go this, and she's screaming. And that's one of the funniest things I've ever seen. I'll send it to you. <laughs> yeah, if you give love me it. An email. Well, and I do follow you on Twitter. You are one of the most senior regular users of Twitter and you're great because like me, you use it as a as a vehicle to vent your your thoughts about Mr. Yes. Trump. After this is the one I used today. After canceling Barack Obama's regulations about climate, mm-hmm. Trump decreed I hereby order every iceberg and glacier in the world to immediately cease your melting. <laughs> And he can do that. Yeah. Listen. It's like the great dictator came to life, right? This is Chaplin would think this was funny. I know. But after the war, when your wife encouraged you to get back out there, you also were getting your first 
major acting jobs, right? In the in as a professional, including I think first of of, of all of them, Pardon Call Me Mister, which went all the way to Broadway. Yes, well, it, it was on Broadway. I came out when it was already. Julie Munchen played the leading role in Broadway, Betty Garrett, and they did a road company of it. I was auditioning for something else, and Herman Levin, who was the producer, was looking through a little glass. He saw me audition, didn't hear, but I looked a little like Jules Munchen. I was flailing about. <laughs> he hired me without ever knowing I can do it. That's and great. and I, I did it for a year on the road, came back to New York, and Jules Munchen left to go to do movies. And I took over for the last four months, about a year and a half. That's I did. great. Call me Mister. And meanwhile, you know, I would imagine it was probably right after the war that you also maybe first heard about this new new medium of television. Yes, as a matter of fact, I was very early. I was on Broadway in a show called Inside USA with B. Lilly and Jack Haley, and somebody offered me a job playing a photographer in a thing called a fashion store. It's about mm-hmm. 1946 or seven. I don't remember, mm-hmm. seven to eight. And I got $80 a week for it, I remember. And, and it was a conflict because I did it on a Monday and I show it on Monday. So I used to dress in the taxi going, <laughs> and I got my $80. Right. And I had to get on stage for the first number, and I was there. I always made it. <laughs> and how did it work, though? So that was your first, this was the fashion story. I think it aired in 48, but you were probably, well, so it was live. There was one before that. Was it? That was the fashion story. There was one called Maggie McNellis's Crystal Room, where people, it was like a fake nightclub, right. and actors would get up and do their act, and comedians, singers. Right. And I did my act, and I remember doing it, and I said, you know, I used to do this in clubs. Right. I said, everybody's seeing it, and now I, I kind of have Different actors, yeah. <laughs> but so, just to remind people or or inform people who who don't know, there was no alternative to live television at that no, point, no, right? No, it was all live. So where would you would go to what CBS soundstage and just uh, soundstage? Yeah, yeah. the uh, show of shows was done in a in the center theater, wonderful, but had a big screen so the audience in the theater could see okay. exactly what was going on. Well, so you bring up show shows, and and that was, I guess you would have to say, the the big break. It was the biggest break, yes, because I got to work with maybe the best comedian ever doing a sketch comedy anywhere, Sid Caesar. He was just a master, and uh, I was, I really honed my craft by watching and standing next to this guy for four years, six so years. How did that? How did you and he first meet? How did that opportunity come about? Well, somebody saw me in a thing called Alive and Kicking, Max Liebman, and he needed somebody to be straight man for Sid, and I came on to do that. And then later on, I got the idea that I would, first of all, Sid was the greatest double talker in the world, but I did that in my act. I said, I'll never do it again now because he is the best. Let's, let's tell people who may not know, what's double talking? Double talk is doing a foreign language by using gibberish. That's French. And then, Anyway, Sid was. None of that was actual, what you just said. I wouldn't know, but none of that was actual. No, none of that was. You're just making, improvising. Gibberish. Yeah. And we used to do, there was an American gibberish, too. There was a guy did a great American, English gibberish. Right. So we did that. And But I, I, I said, I'll never use my gibberish with Sid's. And I came up with the idea to do foreign movies. Yes. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, and I went over and sold Sid a pack of cigarettes. We bargained. 
Donde Ferragoni, no, Cimpegnolo. And, and that's, that's the way I worked my way into being more than just a straight man. So, because you were, you were originally hired for the show, for your show of shows as a as an actor, but then it was because you showed through that cigarette idea, the foreign film idea, that you would you had creative ideas that that led to you coming into this most famous writer's room of all time? Right, yes. I was a writer without portfolio. I could come <laughs> up with ideas. And, but I was the most important thing I did in that room was sit next to Neil Simon, Doc Simon. Mm-hmm. And he had a voice of a turtle. He always talked very quietly. And when he'd have an idea, he'd say it. And I'd say, hold it, hold it. Doc's got it, and I would say what Doc said. Right. That was my major job. Well, it really is legendary, the the people that were in that writer's room. And I know you started, I, I'd read an interview where you said you started out sort of just sitting outside of the room. Until, yeah, until I came up with the idea. With the foreign film foreign idea. Film. So once you got in, who else was in there, and how did it work? Well, the, the head writer was a guy named Mel Tolkien, a Russian immigrant to, to Canada, and Lucio Callan, another Canadian, they were the first two writers that worked with Mac and, Max Liebman in, in Tamament, a little club, I mean, a little a resort yeah. that had, he did reviews every week. Yeah. That's how he was able to do a review every week. Yeah. He did three reviews and before he had to go back to do them again because wow. the people would stay for three weeks. Right. So he got the idea that he can do more than, to do Monologues. An actor had a, and a comedian had a monologue that he used for years. Sid had to do a monologue every week, and he did it, which nobody had really no, done before. But in that writers' room, as I said, Mel Brooks was a writer without portfolio. Mm-hmm. He was a friend of Sid's, funniest man in the history of the world. <laughs> uh, Larry Gelbart, maybe the the quips, the greatest quips to ever lived. Tony Webster was hired later. The only Gentile comedian, comic writer. He was absolutely brilliant. <laughs> He came up with the, the best punchlines ever. Oh, Mike Stewart came on. He was very quiet, but he was the arbiter. He would, he would, we need somebody to write down where things that were thrown about. And he would, Mike, why aren't you writing? He said, it's not worth putting down. And he, we'd listen to him. How about Aaron Rubin? And Aaron, well, Aaron Rubin became, he was one of the best we had because he became, you know, he created the, the Andy Griffith show. Right. And, How about Sheldon Keller? Sheldon, I don't mention him because he was a friend I brought in. He didn't really contribute. He didn't really contribute. Yeah. And how about Gary Belkin? Oh, Gary Belkin. Yeah, he was okay. But the the big the biggies where I told you was Doc Simon and right. Mel Brooks and Larry Gelbart. They were the biggies. Now, what am I thinking about? Where am I completely losing it? Or he would have been very young. But did Woody Allen have some? No, Woody Allen. They, they put him in with there. Woody Allen would have been twelve years That's old what if I was he worked thinking. on a show. Yeah. A show. No, after I worked with Sid for six years. Yeah. I came to visit one day. I was now doing stuff in Hollywood. I think After I was doing, you'd already yeah, done Yeah, I, I think I was doing the, the Van Dyke show. Right. And I came to New York for a visit, and, and he was doing a series of five or six specials. Right. And he said, look, I got a new red-headed writer. There was always a red one, <laughs> right. a red-headed, uh, Mike Stewart, by the way, who wrote Candide and mm-hmm. Bye Bye Birdie. He right. was a brilliant writer. Yeah. And oh, so uh, uh, Woody Allen... Came in then. He was about eighteen then. He right. was very young, but, but he, it was he after didn't, show shows. Yeah, after the show, he would have been twelve years old. So what I understand is that when you first, I guess, went into the writers' room on your show of shows, that was the first time that you really encountered Mel Brooks, who to this yes. day is, I think, your best friend. Yeah, he sits right there every every, every night here. Yeah. You guys get together. I love that, and we'll talk about that. But I think you two, from from what I've read, you really 
hit it off right away and not only hit it off, but wasn't that the beginning of what became 2,000-year-old yeah. man? Yes. The very first day I came to the show of shows, Mel was there, and he was working for Sid for $35 a joke or something. <laughs> he wasn't Mel. Max Liebman hated him because he was so obstreperous and noisy. <laughs> and he threw lit cigars. He said, get out of here. <laughs> he used to throw cigars at Mel. Oh, my God. But when I came in there, there was Mel. He was standing up doing a, a character called the Jewish Pirate. <laughs> and I'll never forget the first words. He says, you know how hard it is to be a, a pirate these days? He says, you know what they're, what they're charging for sale cloth? $3.29 <laughs> a yard. I can't afford to pillage and rape anymore. <laughs> and that was his first thing he ever said. And right. The following week I came in, it was Sunday, and I saw We the People Speak, which was, you know, the news of the day. Uh -huh. And I came in without saying anything. I went right to him and I said, Sir, I understand that you've lived for 2,000 years. Is that true? So, oh, boy. <laughs> I said, did you know Jesus Christ, the first word? That's when he said, oh, boy. I said, you knew Jesus? Yeah, he's a thin lad, right? He wore sandals all the time. He walked with 12 other guys. He's, they always came in the store. They never bought anything, but I gave them water. Very nice boys. <laughs> Those are the first words. For the next 10 years... At parties, when it was dull, right. I never knew what I was going to ask, and he never knew what I was going to ask. And I, most of the time, I'd bite my lip. I was laughing right. so hard. So it was always improvised. Improvised for ten years, and we did it at parties. We said it's only for, for Jews and non-anti-Semitic Gentiles. <laughs> it was four years after the war. Right. The Jewish, the Jews were decimated. We didn't want their accent to be be mocked. And it was Myron Cohn who came back on the Sullivan Show, started using the Jewish accent again. We said, well, maybe it's all right. But we didn't put it on record until 10 years after. Why From 1950 to 1960, it was only at parties. Why did you resist as people? Because people over that 10 years were encouraging you to do stuff with it, right? It, it happened in one felt swoop. Steve Allen was a big fan of it. He had heard it at a party. He was there with, there were three, He they made command performances for us to do these and were one of these A-list parties. Right. And Mel and I got up, and after the show, George Burns said, Carl, he says, there a record? Do you make a record? <laughs> we said, no. He says, better put it on record. I'll steal it. <laughs> Edward G. Robinson said, I want to play that guy on Broadway. I'd like to play the Thousand Man. Make him play. Thousand Man. I was 2,000. He said, I can play any age. I'll never forget that. <laughs> and it was, it was Steve who said, fellas, I have this studio, World Pacific Jazz. Right. I don't want anything with it. You go, go there, take the studio over, do what you want, wail, and make something. And we did. We took the studio, asked two, 300 people to come in, and for two hours we wailed, cut it down to 47 minutes, and put it on record. And I remember the first time it was on record, I heard it. It sounded good. Mm -hmm. And I was at working at Universal and doing movies, and my next-door neighbor was Gary Grant. <laughs> and he, I gave him one, and he came back, and he said, this is funny. He says, can I have a dozen? I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to England. I said, you going to take these things? I said, they speak English there. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> he came back, and he said, and we always worried whether it was going to travel. And he said, she loved it. I said, who? He said, Queen Mother. 
took it to Buckingham Palace, and I said, biggest shicks in the world, right. except that we're home free. That's fantastic. And anyway, it, it caught on, and it's still... Oh, still to being... this day, people love it, absolutely. And just so for people to understand the chronology, those 10 years of you guys developing you know, that shtick was simultaneous to you working on your show of shows and then Caesar's Hour, right? Yeah, right, and... It, and then Mel went away and started doing his things, and yes. I started doing movies. And we we haven't done it since. I think we did one revisited 10 years later. Yeah. That's right. They're well, all on record someplace there. For sure. And you guys won a spoken word Grammy for it, I think, yeah, at one yeah, point. Yeah, right, right, right. That's right. But back to your show shows, because I think I know that for people like myself who were not alive when it was on the air— all we can do is, you know, now it's great. We can go and watch it on YouTube or whatever. But I don't know if people fully appreciate Like, this was the most revolutionary thing on TV up to that point. And I just wonder, for someone who wasn't around to see it, can you explain why it was so revolutionary, why it was so important? Well, it was the first variety show that, and not a variety show, it was a, a musical variety. Mm. It had opera singers, it had ballet dancers. It was a Broadway show. Nobody ever saw that on mm. television before. He didn't play down to the public. He he lifted the public up. He had Margaret Piazza and Robert Merrill singing. He had the Hamilton dancers. Mm -hmm. And when Sid made his own show, it was a matter of fact, it, it always bothered Sid that when the show was live and it had to be cut, there was mm -hmm. always, you had to come in on time. And the easiest thing to cut were words. Mm -hmm. You can't cut a dancer in the midair. Right. You say, cut from this step. To this. <laughs> so we were always cutting. And was, so when Sid did his show, he said, no dancers. And when you say his show, you mean Caesar's Hour? Caesar's Hour. He, yeah. No dancers. We're going we're gonna to do all sketches. And we can do sketches, long sketches. We right. did movies and movie takeoffs, long ones. That's great. And I know some of the most beloved and remembered sketches from your show of shows that you were a part of. This is your story, sort of a spoof of This Is Your Life. Yeah, one of the funniest sketches ever done. Right. I mean, I saw it in a, in a, from 10 to your show shows in the theater, and I heard a woman laughing hysterically, <laughs> and I realized that woman was me. <laughs> I was screaming. I'd, I'd never seen it. You know, we'd never had, right. we didn't look at kinescopes. We just did the next show. First time I'd ever seen that, that whole act. And not only first time you'd seen it, but like for much of your show of shows run, your own family didn't have a television, right? Yeah, for the first year we I was on the, we bought a little. We saw it at another somebody else's house. Right. But then when the second year, I think we bought a little seven-inch set. <laughs> and Rob was very small at the time. I says he say hello. I said I'm not allowed to say hello, but at the end I'll touch my tie. That's saying hello to you. That's right. Went, me to touch. But it just shows people, I mean, how early in the era of TV this was and how everything it was doing was unprecedented. Yeah. And I know the other sketch that comes up a lot, maybe I'm excluding others, but it seems like the professor would have to be another very high up on the list, right? Yeah. We also did a show called Break Your Brains, one of those shows. It was a sketch. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Sid was absolutely, I remember it because- the idea of this show is that if you ask the, if you answer the question, yeah. you got that money, and the next question was double the money. Du uh -huh. You keep doubling, doubling, uh -huh. until you got to a million dollars, whatever. And when you got to a million dollars, this is what made me laugh so hard. 
I said, and the million-dollar question that I gave him was the longest question you've ever heard. <laughs> Name the composers of every opera from this. Who, who, and, but I gave him like a 15-question right. And he answered them all. He went for 10 minutes, half double talk, but answering the questions. And I'm looking right. I'm looking at the answers on the other side of the page, and I'm nodding, nodding. And I said, that's amazing. Every answer wrong. <laughs> However, you took 11 minutes to do it. Yeah. At $100 a minute, you have now won $10 million. <laughs> right, right. Do you want to take that money? Or go home and go home. If you answer the next question incorrectly, you'll you lose everything. You want to take the money? I'll go on. <laughs> That's fantastic. I think he loses. Yeah. <laughs> Very simple question. He loses. On an easy one. Oh, that's great. Did you guys ever run into censorship issues in those days? Always. Always. always yeah. As a matter of fact, I talk about that because today you can say fuck. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Sid, uh, we were called down once. Sid was called upon. We we did a World War One sketch where we're being bombed by the Luftwaffe, and Sid is waving his fist at the skies and says, "Damn you, damn you, Nazis! <laughs> no, not Nazis. Damn you, Germans!" Buff, yeah. yeah. And the censor came and said, "You can't say damn on the air." And he said, "Oh." And we didn't, so here he's yelling, this darn the, you. Oh, no, he changed darn, it to, to darn to you. Darn you. <laughs> darn you. And I'm saying, I did a uh, a roast for Joan Rivers once. Yeah. And I never did roast, but yeah. I did it, but it was hers. And I remember everybody cursing a Gottlieb, uh, Carl, uh, what is his name? Gottfried. Gottfried. Oh, yeah. Oh, going Gilbert crazy. Gottfried. Yeah, yeah. And everybody, <laughs> Whitney Cummings, right. everybody was. Oh, my God. And I, and, I, and I said, what I was just said, I said, a few years ago, I said, I was, I was on the Van Dyke show. We couldn't sleep in the same bed. We couldn't say darn. <laughs> and I said, on the show of shows, we had to say darn you. Right. And so at that moment, I said, so to, I'm going to use every word that I never, <laughs> and I used every word. That was verboten from the C words, the P words. And, and, and at the end, I yelled, free, free at last. <laughs> That's great. Well, so you mentioned that at a certain point, I guess after I don't know how many years, your show of shows, Sid, I guess, just felt he wanted a fresh format and started Caesar's Hour instead. How was Caesar's Hour practically different? Well, it was longer sketches. The longer sketches sketch. we did, they were really very funny. Yeah. I mean, I commend you to find them. Well, let me ask you about the, a couple of them, the yeah. commuters. Well, the commuters were the everyday life of, uh, home life of everyday people. And Mr. and Mrs. Hickenlooper, I think there was Governor Hickenlooper. We got right, the name right. from him, yeah. Colorado. The Hickenloopers. And they were just ordinary people, but uh, doing ordinary things. The sketches were hilarious. And the three haircuts? The three haircuts were based on all those crazy trios at the time. <laughs> and, and remember, we, we needed to fill out, this is how fast we were, we needed to fill out a show, we were missing a third sketch. And, and Sid came up, he said, why don't we do the, the, uh, those guys? And he came up with the, uh, the, the, the haircuts. And in a second, we, we said, what do we sing? And Sid said, you are so rare to me, so very rare to me, and won't you be rare? In that, so hurry, 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 right. don't, don't, don't be rare to me. And and Mel Tolkien kid, 
Oh, no, Sid wrote going crazy, 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 going crazy. And 12 bars, I mean, three stands are going crazy, going over you. That was the end of it. And then we did the other one, which was You Are So Rare to Me. That was Sid's. It became such a hit, they made a record of it. I have a record of it upstairs. Do you get royalties on that? Two-sided record. What was the best and worst part of doing this stuff live, which now SNL does it, but not many other things at all on television? I don't know very much of any. I don't know if they're real live because I think they do it before so they can they can edit. If they, We didn't edit at all. It was live, live. Yeah. Did things go wrong? Things go wrong? You just did it. I mean, yeah. and also, Sid was such an inventor. He would invent things. If an audience laughed, he would embellish. Once, a couple of times, I almost... I Broke. really had to bite my lip. <laughs> he was playing a, uh, we were two barristers, yeah. father and son barrister, and he's all fixed your tooth and nail, son, even though I don't have my teeth and nails anymore, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but we're two English barristers, right. we're playing pool. Right. And the pool table, the felt was scored so that at one point, he hits a shot, the pool cue goes under the felt, <laughs> and he pulls it up and rips the table. And I'm, I hit the little the accountant thing on top and I say, good yeah. shot, yeah. good shot. <laughs> and, twi- and, and the audience is roaring. We didn't know there was a warp and woof to a table. They scored one going the other way. Uh-huh. And when you put the pool cue in and pulled it up, it didn't tear the floor. Uh-huh. It broke the, the uh, pool cue in half. <laughs> and there's Sid, and I know, oh, my God, now right. we got... Sid is walking around with a shillelagh in his hand, <laughs> looking for his second shot, walking around the table. Oh, my God. <laughs> he uses like a polo mallet. Oh he winds up, hits the cue ball, and the ball bounces off a wall and bounces all over the place. <laughs> and I was... I had to bite my lip. I was... And then I had to say, good shot. Right. <laughs> now, did you... Like, today... You see it quite often that comedians break and they can't help, they start laughing. Jimmy Fallon's great, but he does it. A lot of guys on SNL do it. Did that ever happen? Sid would, would you'd be fired from the show if you ever laughed. Really? At that time, Milton Berle was a big fake laugher. That's... He would turn around and shake his shoulders. Right. And Sid hated yeah. that you'd laugh at your own jokes. Right. He said, if anybody, nobody laughs with the audience. He was very big at that. Wow. And so nobody ever we never laughed on the show. You'll never see us breaking up. Interesting. So after nine years, I think, of working with Sid, you left to go off on your own. What brought about that decision, and was that a hard decision to make? No, because I had, right after the show shows ended, the variety show disappeared until Carol Burnett brought it back right. 10 years later. And I was offered a lot of situation comedies. And my wife, again, when they weren't very good, my wife again said, why don't you write one? Whatever. And I remember being on, I've said this many times, on 96th Street and Franklin Roosevelt Drive when I asked myself a question, where do you stand on what piece of ground you stand? Nobody else stands. So, well, I live in New Rochelle, wife and a kid. I work in New Yorkers. And the writer's room was, I'll write about that. And so that was the sense of write what you know. Yeah, and that became the... Head of the Family, which I wrote for myself. It didn't go. It wasn't very good. I mean, it was okay, but I wasn't exciting. So I started writing movies, but Sheldon Leonard had seen the 13 episodes I'd written for myself in the summer. I wrote 13 to have a Bible for other writers. 
And he said, these are very good. I said, I don't want to fail again with the same material. Because it had been a pilot that was not picked up, or how did it work? It wasn't picked up. Okay. Uh, I think it was on the air once, and it didn't get too... It was okay. Right. With uh, Sylvia Miles, Morty Gunty, very good actors. So I, I t- uh, he said, he, they called me in. They, my agent had those 13 episodes. He was killing him. His gold laying on his desk. <laughs> and I told Sheldon, I don't want to fail with the same material twice. And right. he says, you won't fail. We'll get a better actor to play you. <laughs> and he suggested Dick Van Dyke. I saw him in New York and Bye Bye Birdie. Most talented human being ever wow. put on earth. And then I had to look for Laura. Yes, that and, was that was a. And you saw how many people before Mary Tyler Moore? At thirty-five or thirty-four or five, and she came in not wanting to come in that day because she had had a couple interviews that week and didn't work. And she came into the room and I gave her a page to read. She read the first word, and I said, "Stop." And I, I've said this so many times, but I heard a ping in her voice, and I looked at her, the beautiful hair. That smile, those teeth, and I looked down and saw those gorgeous legs, <laughs> and I, I realized, I told Sheldon, I don't know who I'm looking for. I was looking for, through third. He said, you'll know when you see it. Right. And I made my hand into a claw that they, the claw that picks up candy at the, yeah, uh, and those, and the those uh, arcades. Yeah. Yeah. I made, and I walked across the room, grabbed the top of her head, <laughs> and she thought I was going to cost her. Right. I said, come to me, come with me, young lady. I walked her down the hall. Right. I Sheldon, you're right. I found her. Wow. Yeah, and there she was. Today, obviously, the show is still remembered and loved as one of the greatest sitcoms, but if not the greatest. But was it a hit right away? It wasn't a hit right away because we were opposite the Perry Como show, and Perry was the number one show on the air. And they were ready to dump us, and somebody suggested that we rerun it during the summer at very low price. And my partner said, no, no, it's, it, we're losing money if we run and I said, fellas, if they want it for nothing, right. I'll give it to them for nothing. Take, my, I don't want any money. Right. I said, those people will test us. And I was right. It the worked. next week, we were number one the following year. Amazing. And so it started with the 13 episodes that you'd written for when it was going to be you as the lead. Yeah. Now, after those 13, was it still you writing solo? Well, I wrote the first 30 out of the first 40 or 50, I was all alone, and I was really going crazy. I was working upstairs on the typewriter. My Smith Corona, by the way, the Smithsonian just asked for it. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. And uh, so, but two guys came in, my nephew George, who was my agent, brought me two writers, Bill Persky and Sam Denoff. They wrote a show, and I read it, and I said, that's my boy. So it they was, were like they were they were doing episodes for you. They did one episode that yeah. I looked at and I said, "This is great." I put it on, had a good part in it. Yeah, it, it turned, and I said, "To this day, Persky and Danoff and another group called Gary Marshall and Jerry Belson came mm-hmm. later. They started writing shows for me. I wrote with Persky and Danoff for a while. At the end of the series, in the last year, they became the producers when I went to do the, the Russians are coming right. as an actor." But uh, they saved my life. I say, I tell Bert, Billy all the time, I would have died. Because <laughs> it was two and a half years. Well, it was two and, two and a half years of, I was, there, I, I was the producer and the story editor. There was nobody with me to talk to. And an occasional I talked to myself. actor on this, obviously, as well. You were basically playing like the, the Sid Caesar sort of yeah, part. Yeah, right. The, uh, 
This was Alan um, Alan Brady. Brady. He, <laughs> was, he wasn't Sid Caesar. Caesar was a pussycat. Yeah. Alan Brady was a combination of Phil Silvers, and, and uh, he did a show where he was a terrible right. guy. Now, where did the idea of, of giving this guy a toupee come from as well? Your character, Alan. Oh, right? I played myself, yeah. Yes. Oh, Alan Brady was never seen the first couple of shows. Yeah. I used the back of my head, you know. <laughs> and then we wrote a show that, and like this show, was written with a very big part. It wouldn't be fair to the material not to turn around, so we turned around. And I just used myself. I never right. wore a toupee. I wasn't... No, 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 that's yeah. what I was saying. But, yeah, uh, but but I realized the the make that made fun the fact sure. that he was very solicitous about <laughs> and people not knowing. Now I'm trying to remember was Dick Van Dyke show single camera, right? No, three camera, three show. camera, invented because by it, Jerry Lewis. Right, right, right. And were they even doing single camera at that point? Yeah, single camera shows were still being done, but we we had the advantage of. But by multiple cameras, you do it in time. An hour and a, a half hour show took about an hour. Right. And we had an audience. We captured their laughter and never added a laugh. Right. A guy named Charlie Douglas. Charlie yeah. Douglas had a laugh machine that he used for the one camera shows. Right. And he threw away those laughters and captured our laughter ah, to great. use on other shows. And Barbara Bain, who used to come to all our shows, she yeah. had a big, big laugh that. Yeah. I said, Barbara, you're laughing on a lot of shows you've never seen because... <laughs> <laughs> and would the show have been different if there wasn't a live audience there for it? Oh, absolutely. I did the original show, uh, Head of the Family, without a live audience. I, I captured it. I played it for an audience yeah. and captured the real laughter. Right. It didn't add any. But it's quite a bit of different because when you hear a real audience laugh, you time your your next line differently, and you can embellish it sometimes by just a glance. If, you're, if the audience is laughing, you just give right. a little look to the other actor. You it's can, more like theater. Yeah, it is theater. Yeah. So you mentioned that eventually you stepped away from some of what you were doing in order, I guess, from Dick Van Dyke in order to do The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and, and get back to acting in other in films. But you also, around that time, I think, began to get involved with directing films. And had directing films always been an ambition of yours? No, I never did. But somebody directed a film. My, my uh, One film I wrote, and I was very upset with the cutting of it, uh -huh. using, uh, I know when in comedy, if, if the reaction to something being funny, you want to see both oh, people. You Norman don't want to cut to it. You don't want to cut to it. Right. You want to see both people. And I, I realized I, I, I better protect my material by being a director. This was, I think I heard you tell the story, it was Norman Jewison, right? Yeah. So it's just comedy it has to be dealt with differently very yeah. much. With Oh, Norman Jewison is a wonderful director, right, by the but, way. He did a sensational job. and He made made an actor. He forced me to be an actor. He call, he offered me the role of Rosanoff, and I saw that double talks up. Right. And he got Alan Arkin, who really learned to speak Russian, who was brilliant in it. And he came back and he said, how about playing the lead? I'd never played right. a lead. Even where he sent my, oh ah. my God, I, I was, I was, it was my first and only starring role. And the funny thing with Alan Arkin is that he had also won the Tony for doing After Laughing on Broadway, which ended up being the first film that you right. directed, right? Right. So this just for, so people can follow. Let's just restate: you had written Enter Laughing, this this autobiographical book. So my friend Joe Stein, who is a who is a, a wonderful writer. He read it and he says, this would make a dandy play. Right. And I didn't realize that. 
I said, he might be my guest. Yeah. So that year he wrote a dandy thing <laughs> while he was writing another dandy thing called Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, my God. He wrote them both the, same, <laughs> both the same year. And so with that Broadway production, Arkin wins the Tony. Then they decide, or, or some, I guess it's decided, let's make a movie of this. Right. And then you came back to your own material right. and directed for the first time a film. Yeah, and I couldn't use Alan Arkin, who was now 32 years old. Right. And we needed somebody who looked a little young. <laughs> yeah, breaking into the business. What was the root of your relationship with Steve Martin? You, you directed and then I think co-wrote or wrote four movies with him. Let's remind people... The Jerk in 1979, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid in 1982, The Men with Two Brains in 1983, and All of Me in 1984. How did you two first cross paths? I kind of remember David Picker was, or something. All of being Me about. was written by other people, but yeah, yeah. The Jerk was written by him and uh, Michael Elias and uh, and David, and uh, I just had tweaked it. Yeah, I read it and I I loved it. And I yeah. t- I tweaked it. I added a few scenes, and we had a real. Real rapport. As soon as we finished the movie, we knew we had to keep working. Right. And that, that's when we, we, he got the idea about doing something about brains. He read, he'd seen Donovan's brains. <laughs> He's, so we looked at it and we wrote The Man with Two Brains, which is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. It fell through the cracks because it was done by a company that went out of business and a company that took it over, Warner Brothers, didn't even know they had it. They had no opening. To this day, I remember having a therapist once. He had a club of about 30 guys, knew every word. They <laughs> they could recite the whole movie from beginning Amazing. to end. I commend anybody who's listening to this, find Man With Two Brains, and if you don't like it, send me a note and An I'll, invoice, I'll send yeah. you money back. <laughs> Maybe not. Right. But now, Steve, at, at the time that you first worked with him on The Jerk, had been sort of a rock star of a comedian. Oh, he was, was he ever. But he not had, an actor, right? No, he had, he had, he had talked to as many as 45,000 people in a venue. He'd go to a ballpark, and he never told a joke. He just made fun. <laughs> he was assiduously stayed away from right. jokes. He approached jokes and never told them. I never realized that. But they were roaring all the right. time. And this, he had never acted with people, so... But... He, but uh, Steve is, is a genius. There's no question about it. F- besides being a brilliant actor, right. he's, he's, he's got a brilliant mind. He's written one of the best autobiographies ever. Oh, I loved it. I Born loved Standing yeah, Up. It great. is sad, wonderful, yeah. brilliant. So immediately we grooved. As soon as we uh, start, Who sat had down, suggested, we, how did you come together? That's why I was saying I, I had read an autobiography of David Picker. And was he involved? I'm v- I vaguely remember him. Oh, yeah. He was the guy who produced those pictures. And yeah. so he did he suggest that you yeah, two work yeah, together? Yeah, he, he, he uh, had Steve on the contract or something. He had, a, he, uh, he had to do his first picture. Yeah. That was a jerk. Yeah. yeah. And they brought me in to... And, uh, and we had such a good rapport and that we immediately wrote The Man with Two Brains. And then we did uh, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, which was my favorite all-time... Fun movie to right. do, and then finally all all of me, which is great as yeah, well. So that was Steve's <laughs> what a performance he gave in that. Sure, the last few things are just brief, kind of big picture questions. First of all, when did you first realize that Rob Reiner had the potential to be a really talented entertainer in his own right? Oh, when I, first when uh, Norman Lear became his, his pseudo father, mm-hmm. he knew him in Fire Island. He 
Robbie used to play jacks with his daughter. Yeah. And he was that funny. That son of yours is funny. As Robbie's, he was very unfunny in that right, house. Right, right. He was, and so I said, Rob. He right. yeah, you see, he was teaching my daughter how to cheat at Jack's. He was very funny. <laughs> anyway, very soon I find out that uh, when he went on All in the Family, my God, he was so brilliant. He was. He's a brilliant actor. I saw him in a movie that he just finished called Shock and Awe. Yeah. He performed. Somebody fell out. The leading character fell out at the last minute. He took over. I told him, Rob, if you don't get an Academy Award wow. or a nomination for this, it's so brilliant. He plays... The newspaper owner, Knight Ritter, during the Iraq oh, oh, War. Oh, 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 yes. And he is so smooth and brilliant, and I didn't even recognize that. Wow. As, he's, he's, he's one of the smartest people I know. I told him, and I meant it. When he was very young, and you know, in his 30s, and then somebody wanted him to run for office. You mm -hmm. know, he would have been governor. Yeah. And he said, I couldn't get 40% of my own. Vote <laughs> my, my own, own vote, house, yeah. <laughs> but uh, to this day, I said, if Rob was in the White House, he'd know how to run it. He really would. Oh yeah, he's, he's brilliant. He has a photographic memory. He remembers everything ever said. I mean, read his tweets on the. Yes, we, no, I do, and I, uh, I, I enjoyed. We got to visit again back uh, in September, and when he was there for LBJ, and I actually the year before, I think, also in Toronto, had seen him and your grandson because your grandson had been central to writing a movie with Rob. Charlie, yeah. Yeah. And that was a very powerful thing because it was a it was yeah, very it was, vulnerable for both yeah, of them. Yeah, it was the reclamation of your life after yeah. drugs take over and it was very wonderful and sad. It was a brilliant movie. I yeah. I I said that is everybody who's ever had any problem with drugs or is, young kids should see it and yes. see what can happen no, if you don't. Absolutely. And what do you think it was like for Rob and your other kids to grow up in the shadow of the great Carl Reiner? Was no, they, they were, they're their mother's child. All of, I said my wife brought up three great kids and one great husband. No, she's <laughs> the biggest influence on all of us. Yeah. She's eight years older than I when I married her. Yeah. And I had 65 years. They thought it wouldn't work. 65 years with the right woman. Uh, she informed everything I am, right. including the fact she said, why don't you write this? Why don't you? All, everything she's ever suggested I do. And she's taught me. She was the brightest, most all-around human being I've ever met in my life. She knew everything about politics. She knew everything about art. She was a fine artist. In, a, in this book, which I'll give you, thank you, Carl Reiner. Now your '94 graphic diary. Yes, it's a mundane look at my life from the moment I wake up to the moment I everything in I it, including wait. all of my wife's. Uh, oh, you her know, work is in there. You know, some of her. While you're pulling this up, I want to just mention for listeners that they actually probably have met your wife in a sense without even realizing it, because it's she who says. I'll, I'll have, have what she's having. Yes, in no, when Harry met Sally. Yeah, Rob put his mother in uh, Harry met Sally, and he called her and he says, Mom, I got a line for you. She says, anybody can do that line. You got a million people. <laughs> Nobody can do it like you, Mom. Right. And and she says, I'll have what she's having. And in the list of AFI, yes. it's, I said, one head of Humphrey Bogart. Yes, saying like one of the lines from Casablanca or something. By the way, I, I, sitting in this chair right here, yes. my daughter Annie was 16, and she was thinking about what we should do for her birthday. Her, 
and Robbie, her brother, mm-hmm. and Kit and Neely's, why don't you get a nose job like your friends did? All her friends had no. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, uh, wait a second. I said, her mother has a bigger nose, and look at the handsome guy she got. <laughs> and Estelle said, yes, it's not the size of your nose that counts. It's what's in it. <laughs> And I told that to Steve. <laughs> Ten right. years later, he calls Estelle, can I use that line? She's for what? Serena de Bergerac. It's not your new size, your news. It counts. <laughs> it's what's in it. That's but great. Estelle, as I say, was a an artist. Yeah. Now, well, she was also, during the war, people couldn't read blueprints. So they hired fine artists to do three-dimensional blueprints. Now, you see that three-dimensional yeah. blueprint? What That's done that? freehand. What is that of? It's That's a, of a submarine or something, you and know. She was doing that. Submarines and airplanes, but but that this was freehand. You can't believe. That's incredible. That one of the one of the tricks, one of the tests was, yeah. you take a, a fine point, a thirty second of an inch point, and on a page you draw a straight line without a ruler, oh an absolutely God. straight line, and the other thing is you take a, a thirty fourth. And you put a, 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 a black line, a white line, in that white line without touching. She can do that. Oh and when you God. look at this, you can say, that's not freehand, no, but that like was freehand. That's unbelievable. Here's all, the, here's all of her artworks. Your writing, you, you're a prolific writer to this day, and one of the books that you've written has, uh, actually most of them, I think, have dealt with your relationship with her. But also, I think maybe it's, maybe it's this one about just the, you found beauty in the way that even when she passed away, that there was a, a sort of a beautiful moment, right? Yeah, that was, my son Lucas said, it wasn't exactly like that, but I said, I, <laughs> I remember it this way. She was 94, and in her bed for the last few months, mm-hmm. she was bedridden. And the last day, we had the hospice people there. She was not breathing or talking or anything. And the last half hour before she left, there was no no breathing. We could see every once in a while a little aspiration. And I said, if she's going, well, why don't we put her? She had done 127 songs on six albums. Wow. She had a beautiful voice, a yeah. Billie Holiday kind of voice. And we, I said, put on. We put on a You're Adorable. Be. We just played it loud. So just play it loud so she can hear herself. And one of the nurses said, what a lovely voice she has. And Lucas, my young son, whispered, said it loudly in her ear, Ma, the nurse said you have a lovely, sweet voice. And she didn't move but and didn't aspirate, but her lips said, Thank you. Wow. Her lips made, Thank you, and she passed. Right after that? Yeah. Amazing, amazing. True, true story. So you recently told another interviewer, I wish I could hang around a little longer to see what goes on. This is another way to achieve longevity. Don't think in terms of how many years, think in nanoseconds. If I live two more years, look at all the nanoseconds I have left, close quote. And between things that you books you've written and and interviews that you've given and things that you've even tweeted, you have spoken a lot about death, which will come to all of us. And yeah. so I just wonder, does it fascinate you? Does it frighten you? What do you make of no, it all? No, no. I've had such a good life. I, if I go during this interview, if I pass out now, I'm fine. Well. Just remember to tell them about my books that I can buy. It. <laughs> when I finish this book, uh, Carl Reiner, now, that, now you're 94, I said to him, well, what do I do now? He says, 
He always gives me titles. He yeah. says, too busy to die. <laughs> and I wrote another book that just went to the printers. It'll be out for Christmas. Oh, congratulations. Too busy to die. <laughs> and I have a children's book coming out. Uh-huh. You say, God bless you for sneezing and farting. <laughs> and so, and I have a thir- another book coming out. Who's live at 95? That's right. <laughs> Who's alive at 95? Well, that's great. Mel gave me another title. <laughs> Who's alive at 95? And I started that. You've written more after the age of 90 than most people write in their whole <laughs> lives. But yeah. so I guess just as a final question for your for your many fans out there who of all ages who are excited that they can keep up with you on Twitter, that you're doing all these new projects, that you and Rob are going to be honored w- through the Turner Classic Movies Film Festival with the handprints and footprints at, at Grauman's. What makes life the most fun for you today? You know, the, the thing is that really matters is you send, we have three great kids, my wife and I. There's Rob Reiner, the oldest. My middle child is Dr. Annie Reiner. She's a doctor of philosophy and a doctor of psychoanalysis. She's a psychoanalyst, a poet. She also has written some brilliant books on psychoanalysis that have been all over the world. She's been called to Marseille and and she just came back from Europe, Milan, where they, they laud her. The wow. things they're saying about her, but new thoughts about the beyond, who she worked with in the wow. last years of his life. And that's my Dr. Annie Reiner. And, I, and my young son, Lucas, who we thought would be a professional ball player, he was that good. Wow. Everybody thought he was going to be. Yeah. He is a world-renowned artist. He is, he goes to, he's in Berlin, going to Berlin right now. He does these massive works. 16 feet tall, 10 feet wide, and right. that museums are all after. I mean, so I, that's the only thing that matters, who you send out to the world. And my wife and I have, have been part of spawning right. three just great, great human beings. Rob, my God, the things he sent out. So, you know, there was one thing yesterday. I worked with Rob on the Tavis Smiley show, which oh, was yeah. on Friday. And the woman making up us, making us up, was one of the Evers people, Medgar Evers' daughter, oh granddaughter. God. And Robbie wrote a thing about Medgar Evers, a movie. Yes. And wrote and produced yeah, a movie yeah, yeah. about it. Oh. Mississippi uh, Burning. Mississippi Burning. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, how everything it synchronizes itself. I can't believe you. And she's making us up. That's amazing. <laughs> and, you know, one other full circle thing is that you joined your show of shows in 1950. Is that right? Yeah. And here today... 67 years later, what happens every night right where we're sitting? Mel and I. Mel, Mel Brooks and I. We watch television. And you guys have dinner together and you yes. watch a movie or TV. Right. And and it's right. this is two-thirds of a century later. By the way, I want to say one thing about Rob. Yeah. You know, I have favorite movies, movies, that, and I like talking about them because yeah. people listening, if they watch these movies, that one of the... My favorite all-time comeuppance movie is The Count of Monte Cristo with Robert Donat, mm-hmm. where v- evil people get their comeuppance. <laughs> the other one, the most romantic movie, if you don't have a tear in your eye and a smile on your face, right. Random Harvest oh, with, uh, Ronald, with Coleman Ronald Coleman and Greer, and Greer Garson. Garson. You at home, if you haven't seen yeah. it, sit with a loved one and you'll thank me for the rest of your life because you not only see it, but you'll make other people see and watch it with them, and you'll get nachos from it. If they have to remake and, all these movies, can they remake a good one at least like yeah. that? And the other one, what I, in my list of favorite movies, oh, yeah, please keep going. is uh, 
the Princess Bride. Yes. And not because he's my son, but yeah. every time I watch, I smile. It's fantastic. You killed my father, you know. The, prepare to die. Right, you killed to, my father, prepare My name to die. is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> you killed my father, prepare to die. And when Harry met Sally, uh, it'll melt you. It's fantastic. So that's a, that's a thing that m- makes me feel great, that my three kids are such wonderful people. And give me five grandchildren. Oh, it's fantastic. Last thing, on the off chance that Donald Trump is listening, would you like to send a a parting word to him? Here's the thing that everybody knows about. He used other people's money to buy big properties, and those properties failed. (laughs) And he bought back the properties at a very small amount of money. Someone said, aren't you ashamed of that? He's ashamed. That's good business. Good business to wreck your friends' lives. I mean that. Yeah. Oh, I can't. I can't. I can't believe. And and the fact that they stole the election with that Russian thing. And Hillary Clinton. I saw a, um, a documentary of Hillary. She, when she was 16 years old, nobody asked her. She was working with disadvantaged children. Mm-hmm. Her own idea. Mm-hmm. She worked with them. That was a real person. We would have a per- the first woman in the White House. He stopped that from happening. This man yeah. having a first woman in the White House, and a and a, a great, a woman. brilliant woman. Well, I look forward to working with you in 2020 to defeat Donald Trump. <laughs> and <laughs> and for now, thank I you. I think he's going to defeat himself. Yeah, he might not make it to 2020. I think so. Yeah. And I'm not kidding. If you call, if you get from one of your I one of the places you call Google or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's called. Yeah, let's tell everybody. Carl Reiner. Now you're 94. It's a graphic diary. It's if you call randomcontent.com. Yeah. I will personally autograph a book for you. Personalize oh, fantastic. it. Fantastic. It's a beautiful looking book, and and already. Uh, By the way, bang for your buck. It's the heaviest book you'll get for this size. Dostoevsky's books are much <laughs> bigger, but this weighs twice weighs as more. much. And, and you know what? It's absolutely relevant, even though it's written way back when you were 94. <laughs> yes. By the way, there were actually 400 photos in it, so it's a great toilet book. <laughs> well, so they'll, they'll start on that, and then by the time they're done with it, your next round of books will be out. Yes. I, I, and I'll see you again. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.